Well, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Be reading verse 18. And put your finger on Proverbs chapter 5, Deuteronomy 5, and then Proverbs 5. When Christ was asked what the greatest commandment was, He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then He said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. He's affirming the commandments. He's summarizing them in a way that affirms them. He's not distancing Himself at all from these commandments. He commends them to us. Indeed, we, we no longer see God's law and His commandments as over us to condemn us, but now God places His law over us in love. I struggled uh, with this message, and it's going to be a little bit unorthodox. I'm going to spend just a moment. didn't know how else to do it. I'm just going to read some of the things that really ministered to my soul. Thinking of the law, this is from Communion with God by John Owen. Just by way of introduction. Until such time as men are actually delivered, a time determined by God, they are personally under the curse of the law, from which they shall certainly be delivered. They are under the law not with the intention of being punished, talking about the elect, but as it is a means appointed to help them come to faith in Christ, and so acceptance with God. When this is accomplished, their whole obligation to the law for justification ceases. Their condition was that they could not fulfill the perfect obedience required by the law, so by the law they are led to faith in Christ, and by Christ to love the law and its obedience to the praise of the glorious grace of God. The Son is glorified by this work of the Holy Spirit in us, for by it we come to trust His shed blood for us and receive all the benefits of that shed blood, which includes the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Though our reconciliation with God is fully and completely purchased by the death of Christ and the ways and means by which we enter into that reconciliation, yet we are brought into the actual enjoyment of it by the way mentioned above for the praise of His glorious grace. Christ's obedience imputed to us and our obedience done to God have two different functions. Christ's obedience imputed to us is so that we might be counted righteous before God, and so be justified. But our obedience is not the righteousness by which we are accepted by God and justified, but it is that for which God has created us, and which we do out of love and gratitude to Him for His grace, Ephesians 2, 8-10. Our obedience is the workmanship of God wrought in us by full and effectual grace. God has ordained that we should walk in obedience. 
This is sufficient reason why we should yield obedience to God. Our wholehearted obedience and good works are indispensably necessary from the sovereign appointment and will of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Our holiness, that is, our obedience and works of righteousness, is one chief and special way by which God is glorified in our salvation. Our obedience is also necessary to bring glory and honor to God. The Father is glorified by our obedience. The Son is glorified by our obedience. The Holy Spirit is glorified by our obedience and is grieved by our disobedience. He dwells in us as His own temple, which is not to be defiled. So it is our great honor that we should obey, for we are called to be like God. In the way of the Puritans, of course, each one of these sentences is filled with with Scripture references. I would affirm uh, communion to God or communion with God to you as you consider not just our obedience, but our whole relationship with God. So we come to God in obedience to His law out of great love for God and of great honor that we show God. The foundations for our obedience from the commandments, though, are seen in Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm going to go over this every week that we talk about the commandments. First, He is our sovereign King. I am the Lord your God. It's the first foundation of our obedience to Him. Secondly, we see that He is our God. I'm the Lord your God. We obey because He's covenanted with us to bring us to Himself. And thirdly, we see that it's because He is our Redeemer. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt. In gratitude, we obey. So this is the seventh commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, reading verse 18. Would you please stand for the reading of this portion of God's holy word? And you shall not commit adultery. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to continue reading in Proverbs chapter 5. Warning against adultery is the subtitle. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honors to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. 
Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because his folly, because of his folly, he is led astray. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this evening considering this great commandment, this mighty and holy commandment, that we not commit adultery, that we preserve our own moral purity and the moral purity of others as unto the Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes and prick our hearts, indeed break our hearts, and bring us to a greater understanding of you, that we might catch a glimpse of your glory, and that you might humble us and make us holy for your service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, all the, uh, all the commandments have a moral central purpose. The central purpose of the seventh commandment, of course, to preserve purity, moral purity, to preserve marriage, but more deeply, more centrally, to preserve our moral purity and the moral purity of others. We're going to look at the text itself and the origins of marriage. We're going to look at what it means to preserve moral purity in our lives and thought, word, and deed. We're going to talk for a minute about avoiding adultery, and then we're going to look at some cultural applications to this as well. As I mentioned, this was difficult to prepare. There's just so much, and it's so grievous today what we see in our country. Of all the commandments, and they're all counter to culture, all of them, I used to think the fourth commandment was the most countercultural. Nobody, even Christians, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy any longer. It's forgotten. But the most counterculture of all might be the seventh commandment a commitment to moral purity and chastity. This thought must be the most outrageous thing in society today. The sexual revolution, if it's done anything, it's destroyed any of the commandments. It's destroyed the seventh. And we're not surprised. All the commandments point back to creation in some way, but this is explicitly from creation. It's derived from God's creation itself. God created male and female in His image. Genesis 2.22 says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And Satan has been repulsed by this and been fighting against it ever since. Indeed, the first sin sees a breakdown of the marriage covenant. Marriage is something that God Himself created. He gave Adam a helpmate, a wife. It wasn't good for man to be alone. And with his wife by his side, he would serve God better, more fully. With a companion, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. But Satan didn't only strike at that first marriage, he continues to strike at marriages today. And indeed, the purity of our lives today, which is the central theme of the seventh commandment, the moral purity that God requires. Today, the notion that there should be any limits at all on sexual activity is thought to be ridiculous. I remember when I was a squadron commander, at Lodges Air Force Base, and we were receiving all of these briefings about all the things that might be a threat to the airmen in your squadron. 
I had about 115 or so, I believe, airmen that were in our squadron, male and female. And we were told that we needed to watch out for this one, I don't even know the name of it, this one app, this one social site where you could just hook up and have sex, casual sex. It's like Facebook for sex. I said, that can't be right. It's got to be another purpose. They said, no, it's the only purpose. You load a profile, you go somewhere, you have sex with someone else who matches your profile, and it's all free, it's all good, you go back home. Well, of course, as a Christian, I was repulsed by this, but as a squadron commander, it's just not healthy to live that way. And of course, the military is reaping all consequences from a rejection of the seventh commandment. The holy God who created marriage, He created marriage for a purpose and it glorifies Him. He also gave Adam and Eve and every married couple since then a gift of sex. Not just for procreation, but for their enjoyment as husband and wife. And God today remains against all those who embrace impurity and sexual sin and reject Him. The fact remains that marriage and sex is created by God for mankind. It's a wonderful, just general grace. A common grace. And as a creation ordinance, it has a special place in the world. It shows God's divine kindness and His benevolence that even non-Christian people can find some semblance of enjoyment in their marriage. No wonder Satan strives to destroy marriage and anything related to marriage and sex. Included the more, including the moral purity that should be inspired in us. So we study the seventh commandment with some trepidation, but also with a sense of joy and gratitude that God in His mercy would give a man a woman and a woman a man. This is grace. It's also important because Satan knows that if he's going to get after the church, this is one of the best ways to do it. How many illustrations have we seen in our lives of pastors or leaders who fall because of some sexual sin? I know many of you were like me, just shocked at Ravi Zacharias after his death, all the stuff that came out about his secret sexual life and perversions. How does this happen? The famous John Hagee, not anyone I would ever recommend, but a famous pastor of a megachurch in San Antonio. He actually attended the church that I and Mary Kay were married in, or the, the church we went to when we were married. 15 years before we attended that place. He was, for, he was a, an assistant pastor in the church, forced to leave the church in disgrace because he had an affair with the organist as the assistant pastor. Divorced his wife, married this new woman, and started the church he's at now. I remember uh, my first day or first week in seminary the president of the seminary, Scott Redd, was talking to us about the importance of moral purity. Uh, very helpful advice. He said, if you're struggling with pornography today, stop. 
Don't stop pornography. Yeah, you need to stop that, but stop seminary. Just go. Get out of here. Fix that first by the help of God. And if that is going to be fixed, then you can come back. But don't, don't try to fix pornography while you're going through seminary. It doesn't work. And then he told a story about a, a seminary president, another seminary, not his, a seminary president who's a friend of his, uh, who left in disgrace because his wife caught him looking at pornography on the computer. And as they investigated the matter, they found that it was all over his life. He had li lived a secret life as well. How many lives does this sin have to destroy before we take it seriously? And you look through the Scriptures, it's everywhere, isn't it? We read Psalm 51. This is David, the king of Israel. The man after God's own heart. So the text reads, you shall not commit adultery. Interestingly, in Hebrew, it's just two words. Lo, which is no. And adultery. No adultery. And it's in the second person singular. It's you. You, personally. Don't commit adultery. Let's first consider the gravity of the sin, which we've already alluded to. God Himself created marriage. God created marriage. It's between one man and one woman. Any deviation from this is an abomination. Always has been, always will be. And God calls Himself a husband to the church. The marriage relationship is, is a, an imperfect picture of God's relationship to His own people. That He would be our God and we would be His people. God calls a husband and a wife to faithfulness for life. Mark 6, 9-10, through Jesus affirms this. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. He quotes Genesis. And they shall become, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Why? Because it's just this really good thing? No, because it reflects the glory of God. So when someone commits adultery in marriage, when they go beyond the bound of marriage and have sex with another person, they're literally spitting in God's face. For a Christian to do such a thing, they're trampling the Son of God underfoot. That's why R.C. Sproul says adultery is blasphemy. It's a blasphemous affront to God and His glory. If you think about it, and we've, we've actually talked about this Wednesday, talking about the Seventh Commandment. When you break the Seventh Commandment, you're also breaking the First, the Second, the Third, if you do it on Sunday, the Fourth, the Fifth, the Sixth, the Eighth, and the Tenth, and maybe the Ninth. Probably breaking others as well. God created marriage. He requires marriage to be a reflection of His own purity and faithfulness in so much as we as sinful humans can. It's a reflection of His covenant with us as well. Remember, in a covenant, there's duties for both parties, the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. The husband's duty is to rule and love as Christ loved the church. The wife's duty is to submit as unto the Lord. And both of their duties is to remain lovingly faithful to their spouses. 
But here's a key I think is important for us to consider this commandment. It's ultimately about God. I was talking to a brother who's struggling in, in various ways with his marriage. And I said, even if your wife can't give you exactly what you need right now, God can. And as much as it upsets you that she's not what you want her to be, you need to look to God. You need to get to the point where everything you need is God. If your wife is there for you, praise God. And if she's not, glory be to God. Pray for her. Actually, everything we need is from God and should point to God. And as we seek to please God by obeying the seventh commandment, He needs to be at the center. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So remember, as we begin looking at the moral principle and its application, the law is spiritual, applies to every part of every man. Every commandment is spiritual. It's not that you can look at this commandment and say, well, I've never slept around. I'm innocent. That's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus corrected them. The law is spiritual. Also, the commandments are two-sided. The commandment not to commit adultery is also a command to preserve your moral purity and the purity of your neighbor. The Ten Commandments also express something of the created order. This is explicit. Fourthly, the specific commandments reveal broader principles about loving and knowing, obeying God, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why we focus on the moral principle and then peel apart the Scriptures to affirm that moral principle, which for the seventh commandment, again, is to preserve our moral purity and the moral purity of others. So let's look at the moral principle of preserving the moral purity of ourselves and others. Matthew 5.27, Jesus opens it up by saying, You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is a, a, a commandment you can break in your heart. This is a commandment you can break in a moment. And every one of us, male and female, know this is true. Our larger catechism has broken down this commandment, and we're going to go through many of the Scriptures, but I just want to read you what the catechism says. The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity or moral purity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, the preservation of it in ourselves and others, Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modest apparel, marriage by those who have not the gift of continency, conjugal love and cohabitation for those who are married, diligent labor in all our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. Amen. We're going to touch all the proof texts, almost all of them, in just a moment. They go on to say, the seventh commandment forbids adultery, fornication, which is, it's in Greek, the word pornea. It's just all kinds of sexual sin. Rape, incest, sodomy, all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections all corrupt or filthy communications or listening to them, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, 
prohibiting of lawful marriages and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, which are prostitutes, resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, or unchast company. All of these things were considered to be breaking the commandment because they almost always are followed by a breaking of this commandment and lead to moral impurity. Lascivious songs or books or pictures or dancing or stage plays. We would add movies or videos. All other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or in others. So that's pretty extensive. Let's just simplify these, these definitions through the Scriptures for a moment. The moral principle preserving our moral purity. We can see this in thought and word and deed. Indeed, we just strive to stay pure as unto the Lord. I'm going to rifle through these Scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. He's saying obey the seventh commandment. Stay pure. Proverbs 2, So you walk in the way of good and keep the paths of the righteous. Stay pure. Indeed, we also stay faithful to our wives or our husbands. 1 Corinthians 7.2 Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 1 Peter 3.7 Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Your whole life, you're to stay faithful to that woman, to that man. Proverbs 31.11, talking about a woman. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. All the days of her life. Stay faithful to your man. What else do we do indeed to obey the seventh commandment? We're devoted to each other. We read in Proverbs 5 already that you should rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely, dear, graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You should be intoxicated with each other, to use the language of Scripture, in love with each other. We avoid even the appearance of sin. We Indeed, we flee from sin. Remember when Joseph was caught by Potiphar's wife, she caught him and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. If you're tempted with sexual sin, run. Maybe physically run, like Joseph did. But also, keep your eyes and your way far from her, the adulteress. Do not go near the door of her house, Proverbs 5.8. Just stay away from those temptations. We'll talk more in a moment about that. Indeed, indeed, we can keep our eyes on our own husbands or our own wives. 
Job said he's made a covenant with his eyes. He would not gaze at a virgin. He would keep his eyes looking at his own wife. Indeed, also, obeying this commandment, practically every day, we can dress modestly, this is mostly for women, in a way that honors God. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Why? Because you're actually caring for your brothers in church. You're caring for your brothers in Christ that they might not be tempted. So in thought, word, and deed, we can obey this commandment. That was the deeds that I could most frequently come up with in the Scriptures. But in word, also, we can honor the seventh commandment, the moral purity required. In Proverbs 4.24, Solomon says, Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. I think most commonly this is expressed in like the breaking of this would be in just filthy jokes. Things that you listen to, things that come into your mouth from other people's mouths, or that come into your ears from other people's mouths. They are a repulsive breaking of the seventh commandment in so much as they're impure. And yet no human being can tame the tongue. We know this. But we should, because from the same mouth should not come blessing and cursing. In Psalm 19, David prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Not just my actions, I want them pure, but I want the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pure as well. Not impure. So in thought, word, and deed, let's talk about our thought life. This is actually the battlefield. For all the commandments, but especially the seventh commandment. This is the battlefield. This is where the battle is won or lost. It's in your thoughts. And in Christ, we can actually choose by the power of the Spirit to think about what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent. In Philippians 4.8, Paul says, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. It's convicting to us, isn't it, when you consider all the impure and unholy things you place before your eyes. They're repulsive in light of Christ. Like Job, we need to make a covenant with our eyes and with our hearts. Jesus Himself said, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. This is a a thought sin. The sins of the heart. May God help us. Well, if you're like me, you want to know, well, how do I not do that? How do I not break a commandment? But especially this commandment. What do I have to do? I know it's repulsive. I know it's abhorrent to a holy God. What do I do? Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Any success you have in the fight against any sin is only going to happen when you fix your eyes on Jesus. 
The key to your holiness is looking to Jesus. It's not trying extra hard what you need to do. But that's not the key. The key is to look to Jesus. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, and we prayed this evening, Our Father in Heaven, holy be Your name. When you pray, holy be Your name, remember His name is not just the name of God, the proper name. Holy be Your name implies all the ways that He's revealed Himself to us. His Word, His works, His ordinances, His law, including marriage. Holy be Your name. We need to fix our eyes on Christ and the Holy God. And only then will we be able to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, to God. And not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think it's also helpful to remember that the book of Ephesians is helpfully divided into six chapters. The first three chapters is all about the indicatives. It's what God has done for us. And then the last three chapters are all the imperatives. How you live in relation to what God has done for us. Well, as he ends the last part of the indicatives, before he tells them how to live a holy life and how to live a a godly life and how to have a godly marriage and how to fight sin, before all that starts in chapter 4, this is how he ends chapter 3. Again, fixing your eyes on Jesus. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he's saying, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to see Christ clearly. And now here's all the things you got to do. Here's how you live your Christian life. And he spends the next three chapters telling him, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. What's the basis of it? It's their knowledge of Christ. That's the first way we avoid sin, especially the sin of adultery, moral impurity, and preserving our own moral purity. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, we avoid giving opportunity to sin. We flee from sexual immorality. This is 1 Corinthians 6. It says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Solomon told his son in Proverbs 5, again, this applies on the reverse as well for women Keep far from the adulteress. Do not go near the door of her house. Stay far, far away. You all know the things that if you actually sit down and think through this like it were a battle, like you needed a battle plan, you know the things that cause you to sin. Stay away from them. Especially the the things that cause you to sexual immorality or some kind of impurity. But thirdly, 
we see that we fight. We actually fight the sin. We're actually throwing off the sin. Yes, we fix our eyes on Jesus, but we're fighting. It's a battle. Jesus, talking about this very thing, says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one member of your body than your whole body go to hell. He's saying you have to fight. Not literally cut off your hands and gouge out your eyes, but fight. You have to get into this fight and take drastic measures. I remember a, a Christian movie called Fireproof. A guy's struggling with pornography. He takes his computer outside and he takes a baseball bat and he just beats it until it's in a million pieces. In one sense, it's a little bit ridiculous. He can always find another place. But in one sense, you appreciate the fact that he's at least fighting. He's doing something. What does Paul mean when he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might? It's a spiritual battle, yes, but it's a spiritual battle that actually has real results in your life. It's going to change you. And God will give you wisdom that you might stand against the schemes of the devil practically. Not just spiritually, but how you live, how you act, the things that are around you. So we look to Christ, we avoid the opportunity to sin, and we fight the sin when we see it. It's no surprise then that the world rejects all of God's ordinances. Satan actively opposes the creation ordinances. What were the creation ordinances? Well, we know at least work. Now that's been attacked by Satan, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Sabbath. Of course, that's been attacked by Satan very successfully. And marriage. So at the heart of the preservation of our purity, the preservation of the creation ordinance of marriage, we see God. But there's much more related to the purity or chastity of our hearts and lives. I just want to give you a few cultural examples of how... Our culture, our world, and I don't think any of this is new. I think it's always been like this. Read Genesis 1-7, through you'll see it. But it still continues. Satan still hates marriage. He hates moral purity. He hates everything related to it. The culture of this world, this present darkness, has rejected God. You see this, first of all, in what we alluded to already. Premarital sex. Just casual hookups. Living together. As Dr. Sproul would say, you're spitting in the face of God. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In other words, sex is meant for marriage, and that's all. Only in marriage. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. In other words, sex is only for marriage. The marriage bed should be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So anything that's sexual outside of that husband and wife relationship is immorality. So it's not that we can just turn a blind eye to any of this. You have friends who are hooking up, who are living together, 
well, they're good people. They just need some time. No, actually, if you care about them, you're going to talk to them. It's not right. It's an affront to God. Well, if there's one other thing that the sexual revolution has done in the past, I don't know, 50 years, although it's more prevalent now than ever, is the acceptance, the openness, even in the church, toward homosexuality. Let me just read you what the Word says. Leviticus 18.22, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So, just so you know, the, sex, or the homosexual community calls these passages the clobber passages. That's what they're called. If they think they're Christians, but they can still be gay. These are called the clobber passages. Why? Because there's no argument against them. They just say, you're using them to clobber me. As if all of the passages prohibiting murder would be used as clobber passages against someone who embraces murder or something like that. They just reject the Scriptures and they have a special name for all these that call their sin an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with another man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, it's everywhere in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And actually, I don't like that translation. It's the ESV. Men who practice homosexuality. And in the Greek, it's actually two different words. The New King James Version says, homosexuals or sodomites I think the King James says effeminate. In other words, the man who is doing it and the one who is not, who's receiving. Both. Isn't it? It's just, why would God call both of them out in the very act? Because it's abhorrent to the Almighty God. It's not just those who practice sex, homosexuality. It's homosexuals and sodomites. It's homosexuals and effeminates. Nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed and sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. God saves even the most wicked of men and women. He saved us. We were capable of all of those sins. And yet, once you're saved, you don't identify with any single sin. You were those things, but not any longer. There's no such thing as a homosexual Christian. Romans 1, 26-27 For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. Jude 1, verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, meaning homosexual desire, they serve in as, example, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So all this to say, homosexuality is outright wrong. Brothers and sisters, we can't equivocate about it. 
We'll talk more about how we treat homosexual people, which is with love and tenderness and compassion, but we can't say that what they do is in any way acceptable. It is not. Well, what if I'm just tempted? What if I actually don't act on it? What if I'm just I'm, I'm inclined to homosexuality, but I stay pure before God? In other words, I'm, I'm chaste before God. I just keep it all in my head. Well, that's wrong as well. There's no one who can embrace a sin and affirm that sin and just stay away from the actual physical breaking of it. Again, that's pharisaical, isn't it? And even our temptations, evil temptations are sinful. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, James 1. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when his desires conceived, it gives birth to sin. Jesus Himself said that we could commit adultery in our hearts, and out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adulteries out of the heart. Evil thoughts, fornication, theft, false witness, blasphemy. Colossians 3.5, we're to mortify, therefore, the members, mortify our body, he's saying, on the earth, fornications and uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil desire. Why would you mortify something if it's not sinful? Well, it is. Covetousness. We sin every day, not just in word and in deed, but also in thoughts. So we can't say that just because you have a homosexual thought or an inclination to homosexuality, that it's not sinful. Well, homosexuality, it's not any worse than other sins. Aren't you just being a little harsh on the homosexual community? This is just a misunderstanding of the Scriptures. Yes, all sins deserve the wrath of God. Absolutely. But to say that homosexuality isn't worse than any other sin, that murder isn't any worse than lying, etc., etc., it's ridiculous. Are all transgressions of the law equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Remember, Jesus Himself even said, the one who gave you over to Me, or sorry, the one who gave Me over to you has committed the greater sin. There's greater sins and there's lesser sins. Well, what makes something greater or more heinous? Here's what our larger catechism says, 151. The proof texts are just too numerous to read them all. There's got to be 60 or so. Something that can make a sin more heinous. The person offending it. If they're older, if they're a greater experience of grace, if they're imminent for their profession, their gifts, their place, their office, as guides to others. Obviously, if that person sins, it's a more heinous sin. From the parties offended. In other words, the person who's offended. If a sin is committed immediately against God, His attributes and His worship, this is more heinous. If it's against Christ and His grace, the Holy Spirit and His witness and His work, it's heinous. If it's against superiors or men of eminency, etc. 
from the nature and the quality of the offense? Is it against the express letter of the law? Breaking many commandments in one sin? It's a circumstance or time of day if the sin happens on the Lord's Day or a time of divine worship immediately before or after this time. There are many things that would make a sin more heinous. The Scriptures indicate, it seems fairly clearly, that homosexuality is an abomination. Well, how do you know that? Look at the Old Testament. The things that you are sentenced to death for are more heinous than other sins. So what should we do? This has been in the, in the news as of late. Should we attend homosexual weddings? Let's say you have a, a friend or a coworker, you're close to them, and they're marrying another man, or a woman is marrying another woman. Well, the short answer is no. We don't go to those weddings. A wedding is a celebration of something. There are going to be vows taken, probably before God, probably in a church. No, we don't go celebrate something that's an abomination. And we're called as witnesses. Remember, uh, if anyone has anything, forever hold your peace, that part of this. Like, we're all called to witness to this union. So you would go, and if those words were spoken, you would be duty bound to stand up and say, I have an objection. This is an abomination before God, right? You're not going to do that. So, how should we treat homosexuality? How should we treat, sorry, homosexuals? I would recommend you read Rosaria Butterfield's book downstairs. You love them. You pursue them. You reach out to them. Their primary sin is not homosexuality. Their primary sin is rebellion against God. Just like all of us. In short, homosexuality is wrong. We cannot, we cannot budge. We cannot move. We cannot accept it. How about pedophilia? I'm shocked that I even have to talk about it, yet I do. You think, well, why are you talking about it? Well, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have even talked about homosexuality. The Greek word pornea refers to any wrong sexual activity. All through Leviticus, we read that we should not approach any one of your close relatives to uncover their nakedness, including their children. Children, of course, are have a special place in the heart of God. It'd be better for him to, to have a millstone hung around his neck and cast into the sea than cause one of these little ones to sin. It goes without saying that pedophilia is a, a gross abomination to God. How about bestiality? Absolutely. There are at least four places in the Old Testament where God addresses bestiality. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Well, why does God say that? Because it was happening. You think it doesn't happen today? You know there are people today who are striving or in some states have already married animals? Leviticus 20.15 If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. Deuteronomy 27. And all the people shall say, Amen. Why? Why? Because it's a gross abomination because it breaks the seventh commandment. Yes, that's true. But it also is a, it's an affront to the holy God. 
who created marriage, He created this relationship to be a reflection of His own relationship in the Trinity in many ways. And a reflection of the relationship between God and the church. About transvestism. The Bible has something to say about that as well. Deuteronomy 22.5 A woman shall not wear man's garments, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Isn't it interesting that all of the things that a culture is affirming today, the Bible explicitly prohibits. This isn't about women wearing pants and instead of dresses or something like that. It's about trying to deceive the world in some way by dressing as the opposite sex. It's an abomination. Women should not wear their hair like men, nor men wear their hair like women. You shouldn't try to look like the other sex. How about gender modification and gender confusion? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? You realize that sex changes are happening all the time right now? And it's growing exponentially every year? Well, Genesis 1 says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. To claim to be a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body, again, it's spitting in the face of God. This was virtually non-existent 20-30 years ago. No one had ever even heard of it. Now it's so frequent. From 2016 to 2019, they tripled in number. And they continue to rise today. These surgeries are mentally straining and often lead to suicide and other harm. Let me close with just talking about things that are more close to the heart. Pornography. Pornography in movies and media and books. Pornography is evil. It's an exploitation of women and girls and men as well, but mostly women and girls. Contributes to the sex trade and sex slavery. It's an egregious and grievous affront to God's holy standard. And it's just a poor substitute for the rich joys of sex in marriage. Is this a problem for the church? 40 million Americans visit porn sites regularly. There are 42 million porn sites. The porn industry's annual income is more than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. More than their combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. Pornography increases marital infidelity by more than 300%. Duh. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn. 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party with an obsessive interest in porn. 68% of church-going men and 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. God help us. 33% of women search for porn one, one time a month. Ages 25 and under. Sorry, search for porn one time a month. 13% of Christian women say they never watch porn. Only 13%. 87% of Christian women have watched porn. 55% of married men, 25% of married women say they watch porn once a month. What's the point? It's everywhere. I'm sorry I'm going so far over. Let me see if I can close. 
pornography is never, ever acceptable, brothers and sisters, ever. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. We have a zero tolerance policy in our lives. Personally, in your own life, the, the tolerance should be zero. Cut off the hand. Gouge out the eye. Fight. Throw out your phone. Kill your computer. Get a safe phone. There's no such thing as a private sin. It's going to grow. Your heart's going to harden. You're going to fall into greater sin. We should have no tolerance for these things. Pursue your husband. Pursue your wife. Have sex regularly in your marriage. Keep your thoughts on your husband or your wife. Give no opportunity to the devil. Just close by saying we need to also remember to guard ourselves against opportunities for sin, especially those who are close friends of ours. Usually it happens with close friends, couples that are close friends, with private communications of some kind, some kind of emotional attachment. We're not unaware of Satan's scheme. We need to have accountability, oversight, let your eyes look straight ahead, Solomon said. Fix your gaze directly before you. All that to say, we have much to, to lament. Let me conclude quickly. Adultery and sexual sin destroys the body and the soul. And it destroys your relationship with God. Romans 1, we read that God gives you up to your impurity if you continue to reject Him. 1 Corinthians 6 says that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He's either going to rescue from your trial or you're going to reject Him. You're going to indulge the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. That's 1 Peter. 2 Peter 2. 7th commandment. We have much to lament. Personally, we have much to lament in our country. We have much to lament as a church. My heart is grieved just considering some of the stat statistics about pornography. If you want to talk about this further, please come to me. Um, I'd love to talk to you and help you through sexual sin. It will devour you and destroy you. There should be no secrets in your life. No secret gardens. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for the seventh commandment. We thank You for all of Your commandments. And we pray in Jesus' name that You be with us, guide and protect us. Lord, we want to be faithful. Please forgive our unbelief.